This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Coming up next, conversations on human rights with Speak Up, Korerotia, here on Plains FM. Eina mana, eina reo, eina ho e fa, tena koto katoa, no mai ki tene hotaka. Speak up, Korerotia. Tune in as our guests speak up, sharing their unique and powerful experiences and opinions. And may you also be inspired to speak up when the moment's right. Morena, this is Sally Carlton with Speak Up Korerotia. Today we're talking about anti-racism and I'm very much looking forward to this quarto. I think it's something that's super important anyway, but I feel like the world at the moment really needs some important and powerful and probably quite confronting conversations about these sorts of things. We've got a couple of guests with us right at the moment. We're hoping a third one will join us later on, but perhaps if Heather came and Madis Azamandi, you could... Tell us a wee bit about yourselves and why it is that you're taking part in today's conversation. Perhaps, Heather, we might start with you. Kia ora. Ko Heather came from Tapa Ingwa. I'm a seventh generation Pākehā New Zealander. I'm part of STIR, Stop Institutional Racism, and Tamaki Treaty Workers, and also I'm an associate professor at Auckland University of Technology in the Public Health Team South Campus. I'm probably here because I'm passionate about human rights and anti-racism and upholding Te Waitangi. I think that Te Tiriti is going to be a fundamental part of this quarter, I imagine, as we move forward. We can't talk about anti-racism in Aotearoa, New Zealand, without talking about the treaty as well. OK, and Madis. I'm Mahdis Lazamandi. I'm currently a senior lecturer at the University of Canterbury. I guess I am here because my research focuses on anti-racism, possibly also the work I've done outside the university on issues of racism as well. I came to Aotearoa as a PhD student. I'm originally from Germany, parents are from Iran. So working on racism has been something I've been doing for now over 20, 20 years. Yeah. And yeah, I think it's nice to have this conversation with Heather, who was one of the people I interviewed for my PhD, which looked at Pakia treaty work as anti-racism work. Oh, very cool. That's a nice circle there. Yeah. Just to kick us off then, I think if we're going to be talking about anti-racism today, let's start with the basics. What is racism? How do you both define it as you go about your work? It depends who you're talking to and what shade of racism people are asking about. There's the personal mediated racism, which is the routine, ordinary, everyday stuff between people. There's the cultural racism, which is fueled by the education sector and the media. There's the institutional racism, which is rampant within social institutions. And there's a hundred shades in between, but those are the three main ones that I kind of think about. So it's about a system of power that disadvantages one group, advantages another. 
it can manifest as action or inaction in the face of need. It's just not very nice. It's violence. It's violence. Yeah, I, I agree with her that it, that racism manifests slightly differently across these different levels. I really like the definition used by Ruth Wilson Gilmore, which I know sounds maybe very theoretical for some people, but she describes racism as the state-sanctioned and or extra-legal production and exploitation of group-differentiated vulnerability to premature death, which really kind of situates racism as a system of violence that can be direct and also indirect. So it can be, you know, the, the violence that literally kills you and the violence that takes away life opportunities and life chances. So who has access to resources that make life more livable? So I think that's one of them. And I'm very adamant to acknowledge the colonial roots of racism as it manifests today and that we need to talk about white supremacy as a system not just white supremacy as a phenomenon of the kkk or some far-right fringe but that somehow white supremacy refers to a system of power that privileges life chances for some people but also certain types of knowledge certain types of practices and so forth so i would add that to my definition of how i understand racism and then if we're thinking about racism across these different levels, using these different definitions, depending who you're talking with, depending what kind of context you're in, how do we then think about anti-racism? I always think about anti-racism as something that's active. It's not just not racism. It's something that's got some active component to, to me anyway. Definitely. I think it needs to be an action-oriented stance. So it is not just the absence of racism. It's the active opposition to structures that enable racism. But it goes beyond that, too. I think sometimes when we think of the word anti, we, we think it is just a response to it's the opposite. It's the inverse of something. And I think anti-racism is actually so much more. It's also about envisioning a system in which racism is no longer present, right? So it also entails that for me. Sometimes we mistake the presence of visible forms. And I say visible because we often measure racism by things that are really tangible to the eye as being anti-racist. And I think that is a flaw. I also think that racism, because it entails violence, is always attached to risk. It poses risk for the people it targets. So therefore anti-racism has to be accompanied by taking a risk. If the, if the work that we do that is supposedly anti-racist doesn't take a risk at all. I always say, I'm not quite sure it's doing what we're, what we're saying it does. So it means if it doesn't rock the boat, if it doesn't make people uncomfortable, if it doesn't redistribute certain forms of resources, it might not be delivering on what it's, what it's promising. Kia ora. I love how everyone has a different answer to these questions. <laughs> As a public health person, I think about anti-racism as an art and a science, just like public health. We came up with this definition that we were using for a briefing paper we wrote in the hope to influence the National Action Plan on Racism. And our definition is it's the art and science of naming, reducing, disrupting, preventing, dismantling and eliminating racism. It takes a multiplicity of forms that centre around solidarity with those targeted by racism, analysis of power, and a commitment to reflective, transformative practice. 
in the context of Aotearoa, it involves engagement with Tuturiti or Waitangi. But obviously there's a number of groups in the New Zealand context that experience racism. But yeah, I specialise in racism targeting Māori. Kevin, you've mentioned those different groups there, and we're talking about different kinds of definitions or different, I guess, labels or types of racism almost. Uh, do you notice or distinguish between racism of different kinds depending on different groups being targeted? I personally don't. I don't think that they're distinct forms of racism. I think they manifest slightly differently. So I think it's important to kind of keep in mind that there is an overarching structural logic here in which racism operates, because I don't think that racism is arbitrary, right? Like it's not something that always has existed and therefore somehow always has to continue to exist. But I do think that depending on communities that we look at, we need to look for different forms of how these discourses appear. So for example, the way media representation depicts Māori is very different from how it might depict Muslim populations or Asian populations. So it does show up slightly differently, but it doesn't mean that they're distinct, unique forms of racism. Um, I think some of them have their own specificity and whakapapa, so they have their own genealogies that are worthwhile acknowledging. And I'm thinking here of anti-Semitism that has such a long history and such a, in some ways, unique history as well. So I don't want to gloss over the specificities. But I think when we think of solidarity, which is in, in Heather's definition, which is so important is that we need to understand that somehow we need to see these things as interconnected and that's how we can bring them together and in a settler colonial context it's even more important not to reduce indigenous people as one amongst lots of groups who experience racism like in a multicultural context where all these minorities are kind of the same but to acknowledge that indigenous people and indigenous sovereignty has a completely different place so which is why you know it's important to put tetiriti at the center of conversations on on racism because of the context we are in right so for me it's also thinking about racism in translation and thinking anti-racism in translation so what might might have been an anti-racist approach let's say in germany uh, might be useful and might have some insights for here but it cannot replace thinking from here and thinking from the, the the local history of here and keeping in mind that, you know, like this is, an, this is a settler colony where colonization is ongoing. Yeah, and I think about Kevin Dunn's work and how, and it's self-evident when you think about it, that racism is different in different places. How they do it in, in the south of the United States is different than how they do it in Australia and different than how they do it in South Africa. So there's, there's something that's the same because it's a system of power and it's violence. But, yeah, there's unique bits to it. But it's much more interesting um, working out how to disrupt it rather than describing the problem because we've been describing the problem for a long time and it's much more fun to disrupt. On that note, we might move quickly into the talk on disruption. However, just quickly as we do... Do we have a sense of how pervasive it is? And if so, do we have any form of measuring or gauging? I guess there's um, complaints through to the Human Rights Commission, for example. And obviously there are, there are large-scale events like we've seen here in Christchurch a couple of years ago. We're actually almost at the second year anniversary of the 15th of March mosque attacks. But other than that, do we have a sense of just how pervasive it may be? I don't think the Human Rights Commission data is very 
complete. I don't think many people write complaints when they experience racism and send it into the Human Rights Commission. So I don't think their data is very complete. I think academics sometimes record um, collect stuff, but I don't think there's any comprehensive data about the extent of the problem. But for me as a health worker, you can see the racism manifests as health inequities. And so in the in the tertiary education sector, it, it manifests as ethnic inequalities in health and in, in education outcomes. So that's your evidence of racism more than people logging complaints. Because for a number of people, it's it's an everyday occurrence. When it's a little thing, a microaggression, it's just incredibly ordinary. That's what I hear people talk about, and it's shocking. It's become a normalised part of many people's days. And one person experiencing racism is one too many. I think when we talk about measurements of racism, we kind of forget what it is that enables the things that happen. So we're kind of focusing on oh, who experiences and when is it manifested and when can we record it? Which again, as I said earlier, it puts our focus on these really extreme cases of direct violence. So somebody's physically harmed or there is a slur word that we can clearly identify as being racially loaded. And then that person sitting down and making a submission about it or complaining to the police about it in order for it to be recorded. But it kind of neglects how in the everyday fabric of our society, they are inequities or that design institutions in, in the image of certain people and not others. And I think sometimes it, it helps us to look, who does the system work for? And that's, of course, it's much harder to measure. So, you know, like going into the university and seeing who's represented in the university, who's in the top positions in the university, um, who has really good academic achievement. So some people assume that that is just because of hard work and others understand that there's a system at play that puts obstacles in the in in the way of some people and less obstacles in the way of other people. So I think like racism is not just like the incidents that happen that are explicit. It's also the everyday fabric of society. And that is, I think, really hard to acknowledge because mm. everybody agrees that these overt extreme cases are bad. And I would say the vast majority of people actually don't endorse these really openly racist events. But many people accept poor health outcomes, less education mm. access, less access to housing, staggering poverty rates. And they don't think that those outcomes have anything to do with racism. Yeah. I guess as well on that, there's all the intersectionality that comes into play as well. If we're thinking about things like poverty and intergenerational poverty, it's race combined with disability, combined with gender, combined with etc, etc, etc. Okay, I would like to have our first song now. Um, we've actually had a song chosen by Derek, who hasn't yet joined us, but he chose War by Bob Marley and the Whalers. Until the philosophy which old one race superior and another inferior is finally and permanently discredited and abandoned everywhere is war it's a war 
Let until they're no longer first class and second class citizens of any nation. Until the color of a man's skin is of no more significance than the color of his eyes. Miss a war. That until the basic human rights are equally guaranteed to all without regard to race. And it's a war. That until that day, the dream of lasting peace, world citizenship, rule of international morality. Will remaining but a fleeting illusion to be pursued, but never attained. Now everywhere is war, war, and until the ignoble and unhappy regime that hold our brothers in Angola in Mozambique. South Africa, sub-human bondage, have been toppled, totally destroyed, well everywhere is war, miss a war, war in the east, war in the west, war We're talking about anti-racism and interventions for anti-racism. And Heather made the good point before we talk and we talk and we talk about these sorts of things, but what is it that we can actually do to try and enact some real change, some actual tangible change that we might see? So over to you both to think about what are actually some of these interventions, things that people are doing to implement anti-racism policies and practices for that matter. Well, there's a whole bunch of people working on constitutional transformation so that we have a foundation to our government and our state so that it upholds te treaty he whakaputanga and tikanga. And that's extraordinary, brave and courageous and visionary work that initially was led by Margaret Mutu, Moana Jackson and a whole lot of Māori activists where they went around the country and spoke to at, at over 300 hui, talked about that kaupapa and then managed to distill it and put it into an amazing report where they offered the challenge to 
non-Māori to respond by 2020 and they wanted it implemented by 2040. So that's one of the major um, anti-racist projects of our of our time. Extraordinary piece of work. And as of yet, we haven't had a lot of response from Tawiwi in relation to that. There's been some. So that's an obvious big one. So I always think about like responding at different layers. I think there's people doing work at, at civil society level. So there's activists that, that organize, I think like Matikimai at a broader level, but then also at smaller levels, I, I think the work that activists do educating within communities. So I think the work of Asian supporting Tinaranga Tiratanga who run workshops about Tiriti specifically for migrant populations of Asian descent, where they take into account the unique experience of Asian migration in Aotearoa, which also needs to be acknowledged and shouldn't be erased. I think about interventions that happen at legal level. So we know that uh, legally speaking, it is actually not allowed to be overtly racist, right? Like we, we've criminalized certain racist behaviors. We've removed being able to have openly racist legislation, which doesn't mean that legislation cannot be be interpreted in ways that enables racism. I think that's really important. We acknowledge the importance of ideas about inclusion and human rights, and I wouldn't necessarily say anti-racism, but those ideas within our education sector. Um, so I think there's different layers at which people people do that, and then there's the everyday. So I think you know, as a woman of color in the in the university, just the the existence of people who who've been signaled for centuries that they shouldn't be an institution is also an act of resistance. It's slightly different um, from pushing for large scale constitutional transformation by 2040. So I do want to acknowledge that, you know, some of these things are more um, in our everyday and maybe not as large scale. So I always say, I think it's, we intervene at different levels and we need those coordinated efforts at, at, at all levels. And sometimes it's easier to push further and make more radical demands when you're not embedded within state institutions. I find state institutions are hard to navigate. There's a lot of bureaucracy. There's only as much as you can push, um, which is why we probably see different stances towards racism across different political parties. You know, the, the stance the National Party might take is slightly different from the one that the Green Party might take. Um, so I think we intervene at these different levels because racism manifests at different levels. Um, and luckily in this country, I guess, Tetiriti or Waitangi is actually a document that's available to us uh, as a guiding document. So we, in some ways, have something that other countries don't, um, that's there, that's available to us, that people are making, like that people are using to think about constitutional transformation. I always wonder what would that look like if we did that across the board. So yeah, I guess my response to that is people do different things at different levels. Right. And certainly like this amazing work that Kupu Tyre have done, which is a Auckland based research group that has mapped the negative talk about Māori in the media. And then they developed this amazing, really helpful pamphlet about how to disrupt it. There's amazing work by Tawiwi Totoko that challenges racism on the internet. And they've been training up people about how to do that. There's that long, long history of the work of Pākehā treaty workers trying to educate people about Te Treaty colonisation and racism. Every corner where there's racism, there's people resisting. And usually people take action within their sphere of influence. Mm -hmm. And so that's why sometimes um, 
you know, sometimes my mahi's at the university, sometimes it's in the health sector, but much more powerful than individual action is that collective action when people pull their spheres of influence and then you can go much further. And that's part of the magic of, of what we're doing with our Tetriti-based anti-racism extravaganza that's coming up next Saturday is that we're mobilising people. We're giving people inf- open access to information and encouraging them to get out there and mix it up. And so I'm hoping that we'll see a flurry of anti-racism activity as a result of that collective input of piecing that program together for people. And I think I would add, I always differentiate between, I'm very much like a macro person and I personally really like the analysis of racism. I think it's really helpful when the better your analysis is, the easier it is to figure out where the problem sits exactly is to not mistake this individual learning and the individual responses of disruption as a replacement for systemic change. Um, And I see that with, you know, our our responses to climate change are, oh, you should buy a keep cup and not use the the plastic cups. And it, it doesn't actually touch the problem. If plastic being pumped into our planet is the problem, then me making an individual choice can never be the solution. So if racism is being reproduced at these really large scale institutional levels, then it's always limited how much we can do by individually raising consciousness. I always remind people, it doesn't mean that we stop doing that work because that work is really critical to build mass and build up pressure and to bring different stakeholders together so we can organize together. Like I think solidarity amongst groups is fundamental in that. But to remember that our anti-racism strategy cannot rest alone on educating, right? Because we've been doing that since 1945 when we really started thinking about anti-racism globally, at least in Western countries. And that education hasn't really manifested the anti-racist future everybody imagined. I, and I think there's real limitations if you put all your eggs in the basket of education and expect that to transform the world. I certainly think the importance of systems change and that you mobilise people and you get change agents and you build a shared understanding and then you do that whole have a go, reflect, have another go and just stick at it. And you build more and more people that are committed to the kaupapa and you get a critical mass and then the magic is happening. And certainly it's exciting within our university at the moment, we're doing a whole program of change in our faculty. Me and my friend Judith, two days a month, we're doing treaty training for Tawiwi and talking about racism. And not only are we doing that, is that we've built a team site to create a a community of learning for our colleagues. And we've got an alumni network so that we meet once a month and follow up. And there's a roving group of, of Tawiwi folk that you can access to get advice and support about how to deal with some of this stuff. And so we're building our capacity at a systemic level. And then we've created this pool of people and we're kind of nearly getting to the point of critical mass, which is very exciting to be able to do in your own workplace. So fingers crossed that that will hold the magic. I'm envisaging as you're talking using the analogy of the keep cup, that all of a sudden the equivalent of the banning of the plastic bags takes place in the racism sphere. How cool would that be? Well, let's see what the students and the staff say, because part of that process is we've been doing regular mapping of the racism. 
And I'll never forget the day where people wrote down, um, where's the racism? And obviously people said the classrooms, the curriculum, the enrollment process, the promotion process, but people said the staff room. And that made my heart sink. And people said in the hallway, I think it's up for our students to tell us when we've sorted the problem and our colleagues. And at the moment, I don't think our students would say we've sorted it yet. I'm sure that's similar in other universities. I'm sure that's not a unique story to the university that I work for. No, I would second that. I think when I... I teach in the School of Education now, but my background is in politics. I do often feel like a fish out of water, so I don't often know, is this because I'm outside my discipline or is this this is what education is actually like? Is that I, ha- I meet so many people who are so well-intentioned and operate from the assumption that their engagement with the world comes from a place of inclusion. And then to point out that somehow things that they say and do actually are the opposite of that, that they're, you know, discriminating and hurtful and gatekeeping is really difficult. Um, so when when I talk to my students about racism um, and they share their experiences with me, it's really heartbreaking. Um, but I also look at my students because they know it's the same for me, right? Like they know that the experiences they share isn't just their experience, it's actually the experience that I have when I go back into a meeting when I work with colleagues, right? So I think um, sometimes in, in conversations with racism, it's really easy for us to see the problem elsewhere, right? So in New Zealand that is, but Australia is so much worse. Um, so that's putting it somewhere else. Oh, but Christchurch is so much worse than the rest of the country. Again, it's putting it somewhere worse. Or the working class tend to be more more ignorant. Or it's really just the people who have gone down the rabbit hole of conspiracy theory. And I think it's it's so much more difficult for us to sit down and say, where am I part of this problem? Where am I doing my bit to uphold it? Which is also really important i always say racism isn't about being evil like i understand racism is violence and i don't want to say that violence is ever benign um but for people to to hear oh this is racist and for them to hear oh something is rotten inside of me i must be a horrible person that needs to change right because people hear oh i've been compared to hitler right like that's i feel like sometimes when i talk about racism that's what people hear And I always say, no, it's the air you breathe, right? Like it's the air we all breathe. So we all do our bit to maintain it or we all do our bit to dismantle it. You know, we don't do that all the time. Like there are days when I ignore something that is said because I don't have the energy. You know, it's also learning about where our energy is best focused on, really building networks and alliances and having people fight alongside you. I kind of like this analogy of being in this as, as people who fight. That's why solidarity is so important. But if I think about it at work, the issue isn't what parents say or what my students say. The institutional most powerful stuff is what the institution does or where people look the other way. So I think a lot of racism is maintained not because people actively participate, but because they willingly stand by. I I think there's a lot of people that observe it and do nothing. And it's like that Alice Walker essay about we are the people we're waiting for. And these people are waiting for other folk 
and Stu was going to run a t-shirt but we we haven't got organized yet because we're a tiny community group but we still want to make the t-shirt anti-racism is a verb yeah so it's about doing something and I get that it can be uncomfortable and it's complex for those of us that have got papa that's been here a long time and we've been the beneficiaries of colonization but we can't change the past but we can change the future and what happens next. I reckon that we can turn this around. I wouldn't be doing this work if I didn't believe that. And I remember I went to um, visit Derek, who isn't here yet, who must have got the time zones wrong. I went to do a talk for him at his university in Vanderbilt in Tennessee, Nashville. He got me to do a talk about anti-racism and I did. And then the questions were like nothing I'd heard before. It turned out at the aftermatch that the questions came from a place where they were so used to seeing racism everywhere, they just didn't know what to do with someone turning up who believed that racism could be knocked off, that we could have a world a day, we could have an hour, we could have a week, we could have a lifetime without racism. And so I think it's critical that we try and imagine what it's like and then work back sometimes. Because if you can't imagine it, it's pretty hard to stay motivated. But anyway, different people have different adventures around that. But I do remember that being a very interesting insight. And I thought, wow, I've got a completely different experience of this than these people that I'm working with. There's just always so much more to learn. Such complexity. But you have a go, you reflect, and you have another go. It's ongoing. I don't think there is a point where we're like, okay, this is it. We're done. You know, we can stop doing the work because it's shown us that for the past 500 years, it's managed to survive. It's managed to adapt itself. It excluded new people, included some of the people it used to exclude. And it's really important that in our, for me in anti-racism, that that understands that what I do here doesn't neatly translate to another context. There's a context outside of this nation. So I think sometimes people talk about, oh, what, what do we do here? And this is what works here. And this is how racism identifies people and treats them. And these are the stereotypes, but it doesn't necessarily translate. So I think as a transnational person who's moved in, in and out of so many contexts, I always think about that when people say, oh, what does it mean to pass? What does it mean to be racialized? And I think about this always in a conversation with a broader global system, right? Like I think what's really important for us to keep that global system in mind and to to think about an anti-racist stand that reconsiders our relationships to each other. But I would also like to add our relationship to land, our earth, and how that does not, like that doesn't end with the borders of a nation. Mm. And I think about that also in light of COVID and its disproportionate impact on populations. I mean, we've seen that it's been very well documented on its impact on Maori communities. Maori health experts pointed that out from the very get-go and were you know, willingly ignored. Um, but we also see that now that the economic impact of the pandemic is going to be felt in rural communities and disproportionately marginalized communities much more we saw that with migrant populations who had zero social network, no access to benefits. So there are like differences that we need to think about, right? Like we can't say, here's a one size fits all. We do this and that's gonna work for everyone else mm -hmm. because there are intersections. 
these things show up slightly differently for populations. And I always say, if we focus on the ones that are most marginalized, chances are everyone else is going to do pretty well as well. But we kind of focus on what works for the majority <laughs> and you know, cross our fingers and hope for the best. I can imagine the end, but I also know it's an ongoing process. I hold both those things as a bit of a paradox at the same time because it's about refinement, but it's interesting how some people just get more sophisticated in their racism after they go to the course. They've got a different language, but it's still as dodgy as dodgy. I think it's really interesting the possibilities we have about T-treaty-based anti-racism and what, what that offers that's unique here. And I think if we upheld T-treaty, I think that would make a world of difference in terms of the institutional racism. But of course, we haven't seen a lot of quality examples of how that's succeeded. We've seen some valiant efforts in the 1980s and 1990s, but after the charismatic individuals that led that mahi moved on to different organisations or pushed out, the work got unravelled behind them. And so I think something that's really important to consider is that sustainability of the work and that's the bit that we've never ever come close to nailing here is about how do you sustain change because we've had big victories and then slip 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 slide and i'm hoping that with the rise of some seriously unpleasant stuff through COVID, that the tide isn't turning yeah and to connect these systems of oppression Again, when I say intersectionality, I think, you know, I think of gender, I think of disability, but I also think of class. For me, there is no racism without racial capitalism. And I'm always a little bit reluctant to, to, to think, you know, oh, if just black and brown people and Maori and indigenous people are richer, that somehow the racism is going to disappear. These are tough conversations for us. And, and I include myself. They're tough for everyone. I'm not just addressing white people here. We need to think about how do we build these solidarities? Why is it that it serves the system to divide us? Because it does, and we shouldn't do the work of the system for it by deliberately staying in our silos. And maybe thinking about, oh, if this community has something, it means that I won't. Like, I think we need to really change our mentality and not operate always from a, from a possibility of scarcity, which I think is a very capitalist reflection of how we think about change is that there's a finite a resource and we we have to all fight for it but what if we imagine a world in which we said actually there's enough to look after everybody and everybody should be looked after and this is the way we come together collectively and if we fight for equity in the health system for Māori that doesn't come at a loss for everyone else right or when we fight for equity to housing or some sort of regulation for this horrific housing market. We're not talking about some utopian impossibility. Sometimes I feel like my work is really horrible and it's waking up and smacking my head against the wall every day and it's really dark and really upsetting. But then I also think I must be such an optimist. Deep down, I must be an optimist because I wake up and should choose to do this work over and over and over again. Right, so I think we we underestimate that the people who fight aren't negative killjoys who want to make everyone's life uncomfortable by talking about racism at the dinner table. 
actually these people operate from a place of really critical hope because we actually believe that it's possible to live in a world without racism. That seems like a really nice positive note to have our next song on. So we'll have a Wyatta. If we're having a Bob Marley tribute hour, we need to play <laughs> the redemption song, of course. Sounds like a great choice to me. All right, here it is, redemption song. Merchant ships Minutes after they took I From the bottomless pit But my hand was made strong By the end of the Almighty We forward in this generation Triumphantly won't you help to sing These songs of freedom Cause all I ever have Redemption songs Redemption songs Emancipate yourselves from mental slavery None but ourselves can free our minds have no fear for atomic energy Cause none of them can stop the time How long shall they kill our prophets While we stand aside and look Some say it's just a part of it We've got to fulfill the book Won't you help to sing these songs of freedom Cause all I ever have Redemption songs Redemption songs Redemption songs Emancipate yourselves from mental slavery None but ourselves can free our mind Oh, have no fear for atomic energy Cause none of them can stop at the time How long shall they kill our prophets While we stand aside and look Yes, some say it's just a part of it We've got to fulfill the book Won't you help to sing These songs of freedom Cause all I ever had Redemption songs All I ever had Redemption songs songs of freedom 
songs of freedom Listening to Speak Up Cordero with Heather Kame and Madis Azamundi, and we're talking about anti racism interventions. Heather's part of an organizing committee for the upcoming Tertiary Based Futures and Anti Racism Conference, or maybe it's a speaker series, or maybe it's an extravaganza as you referred to it before, Heather. Anyway, it's coming up, and there are a whole list of really fantastic sounding speakers. I'd be keen to hear a wee bit about the conference, Heather, but also about some of the behind-the-scenes type working. How do you come up with who's going to speak? Um, Have you had any opposition to raising this sort of awareness? These kinds of things. For people who might be looking forward to hosting their own anti-racism events in the future, is it like organising any other kind of event or are there special things that need to be considered? It's a lot of questions all wrapped into one question. It's the second time we've um, run this event and we're going to keep doing it every other year because we need a rest year of sorts mm. in between. Um, it came from a kōrero by Moana Maniapoto on Twitter where she challenged us to... She challenged Tawiwi to organise and do more decolonisation work and she suggested we do it on Waitangi Day and we spoke to our folk and they said, too busy... And so we thought we'll go with International Race Relations Day. So the program is crowdsourced from endless conversations with endless people about what would be good. There's between 50 and 100 volunteers that pull it together. There is no conference organising crew. We get donations from families sometimes and individuals and sometimes bigger organisations. It's a mixed team of Māori, non-Māori, Tawiwi of colour on the organising crew. We wrote a paper about what was special about it, but it's still lost in the peer review process. It takes a long time. The magic of it is that it's about friends and then it's about open access, that it's about giving people access to these speakers because... People have had to pay hundreds of dollars to hear these people normally and this time you can just, if you've got data on your phone or you can get to a place where the internet is, you're good to go. And there's lots of special bits to it because people contribute according to their needs. So some people moderate, some people write a check. One of my favourites was from Decol 2020 when somebody went round the homeless folk and got them data for their phones so they could listen to Moana Jackson. And it was like, how special is that? What's special about how we organise? It's quite relational within the group. Some of us were friends at the beginning, but we're all friends now. And because it's all been organised virtually, many of us have never met in real life. So we've got a relationship, but we've never been in the room. And I so hoped that this year was the year we were going to get to um, be face-to-face at the marae on day one. But two days ago, we decided everything's virtual. So there'll be no going for a kai after because everyone will be safe in their little houses. I'm sorry, I haven't told you the secrets. I didn't really expect there to be any. 
Maurice, you've presented at various anti-racism events that, that I've been to down here in, in Ototahi. And I guess from a point of view of someone who presents or speaks at these sorts of events, what is it that uh, motivates you, I guess, to take part in them? So I guess what motivates me is because I am... <laughs> I quite enjoy talking about my about the work I do, but also it's it's an area that I actually feel really confident in. Mm. So I think it's I I feel like if people want to talk about anti-racism, I'm keen to do it. I've become increasingly wary of when I say yes and how I do it because I think how things are organized is fundamental. I learned so much, and I have to really give a big shout out to the people who I co-organized the conference with. A decade ago, um, um, that was a decolonizer city conference in Berlin. That was a conference like I had never seen before, like I'd never experienced before, and that connected so many important people with each other, and that centered knowledge, not in the really hierarchical way that sometimes the university tends to do. And that was everything was intentional. Every conversation that was curated was intentional. Every speaker was intentional. We had politics of the mic. So there was not a single all male panel. There was not a single all white panel. In fact, um, we were centering voices of scholars and activists and always putting them in conversations in which they could complement, but also challenge maybe some of their, their viewpoints. We had a sliding scale of what you had to pay. So I, I always look for that. Am I an afterthought in somebody's planning? has everything been planned and I am the last person to be invited that's a really red flag it shows where people's priorities are do people have an involvement of mana finua when they do things here in person I think that's another one that I always look for and and is the involvement tokenistic in order to to open and have a closing karakia or is it because you think there's something that they can contribute so I look for that I also look particularly when it comes to conversations on anti-racism whose voice is at the center, right? Like whose voices are we amplifying? What messages are we amplifying? Are we bringing people up? There's a, an immense amount of gatekeeping, not just in anti-racism organizing, in any form of organizing, in any form of academic work, probably pretty much also in, in corporations, but that's not my area of work, so I don't know. I also see it as a red flag when people think there can only be one person who does that. You know, like we already have one main speaker who talks for the Muslim community. When I see the same person, even if that's an amazing person on a panel, I also ask myself, did you not look hard enough? Or is this person not extending invitations to other people? Again, I don't think I lose when somebody else talks about racism, but I do sometimes wonder how people choose who they give a platform to because the platform is also a form of power. So are we centering somebody who says, oh, a little bit of sprinkle of anti-racism and we're all, you know, kumbaya, hug the tree, or are we actually putting somebody who makes people feel really uncomfortable <laughs> and who might have demands that are beyond just having a brown face at the table? Yeah, I think those are some things that I look for when people invite me. I'm also wary when people invite speakers to talk when the institution has funding but doesn't want to compensate the speaker. I think that's very different when community groups ask you to do something. I make decisions based on that, but the main one probably is who's centered and am, am I an afterthought? You know, am I just the spice that's added to something because otherwise it would have been... All right. Yeah, very white. 
certainly with our one, every speaker and every chair was curated and matched and thought about, and there was discussions about them. So it, it took nine months. It was nine months working on, on the program for um, Decol 2022, which was a long time. I just have to chip in a story about the time I was invited to speak at a health inequalities conference. And I was on Twitter and I hadn't looked and hadn't done my due diligence. They were charging people $1,500 a day to go to this conference on inequalities. And I just yeah. thought, OMG, as I contacted the organisers and said, what the hell? And they said, oh, don't worry, you don't have to pay to go and we can give you a free spot. And it's like I pulled out then and there, as you would expect, because it's like, really? You've mm-hmm. set up this thing to focus on inequalities and you're charging people absorbent amounts. It was a business venture. It wasn't about the kaupapa because companies organize conferences. I think it's an interesting example because I went to that conference with ABC Māori invited me to tag along. Like, you kind of do that work. You should you should be involved in these things. And we, all of us were like, who organizes a conference, $1,500? And it's expected that practitioners come in their institution pays for it, right? So it's like, okay, if you work in a hospital and the hospital is going to pay for your registration fee, then you go. But it's not about the kopapa, it's about a company making money putting on a conference, which is very, very different, right? Like, I think it's important to expose those things. And it was, it was the first thing that was said at the conference, actually, was the, the opening statement was by the person who chaired the entire conference was, what are we talking about equity when you were asking people to pay $1,500 to come talk about inequality? And I think, yeah, I think there's, we see a lot of that. And we're going to see a lot more of it because now it's becoming a buzzword. It's becoming, there's going to be this, you know, two, three year window where it's going to be popular to talk about anti-racism before that window closes. And so many people are going to jump on the bandwagon and use it to make money or make a name for themselves. I think the danger of co-option exists within every struggle. I don't think it's unique to racism, but I think it's something to be mindful of. It was an interesting conference to not attend. Just as we finish up, any final words you would like to pass on? Have a go, reflect and have another go and think about registering for Treaty Based Futures Anti-Racism 2022. It's free. It's 10 days of fabulousness starting next Saturday going through the following week. It's something for everyone. Have a listen. Get involved have a chip in i don't really have anything specific i feel like i should have had something more catchy to say (laughs) but yeah it's ungrateful work but you lose some friends you make some new ones so i think that's kind of my message tena korua thank you so much both of you you're both highly expert in this area and it's been really fantastic hearing your wisdom and your insights so thank you very very much thank you good to meet you Get up, stand up, stand up for your right. Get up, stand up, stand up for your right. Get up, stand up, stand up for your right. Get up. Stand up. Don't give up the 